So the third age of JavaScript, did you coin that term or did you build on somebody else's? I did. Cool. I did. I went on a run one day and I was like, yo, there's something going on. There's something in the water in, J- in JavaScript land. And I looked around for different analogies for it and I came up with, the, with this term and it stuck. I can see why. Yeah. You, it makes you, sense. I don't even yeah. know what it means, but it's like, I'm like, I want to know. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. And the, accidentally, it was a very good title game. I, I didn't really think about it that way. I, I mostly was just making observations. So let me explain the thesis in, in, in brief so that people can follow along. Mm-hmm. So the thesis is that every roughly 10 years or so, there's a changing of the guard in JavaScript and the thematic investments or the, the, when you step back in the long arc of history, what changes over that course of 10 years actually has certain very identifiable themes to it. Welcome to Working Code with your three hosts who never make off by one errors, Adam, Ben, Carol, and Tim. Hey, everybody. It is show number 41. And on today's show, we have another special guest. Today, we have joining us uh, Mr. Sean Swicks Wang. Did I pronounce all that right, Sean? Yes, sir. All right. Excellent. And do you prefer that we call you Sean or Swicks or... I I actually do both. Yeah. It's uh, very confusing to everybody. Yeah. <laughs> but I've had, I just had Swix since I was thirteen. Okay. It's my English and Chinese initials. Also, it may, reduces the chance of conflicts. Okay. In my previous company, there was an, another Sean with a, the exact same spelling. Okay, so I just went by Swix. That works. Cool. And uh, so Sean is joining us today to talk about the third age of JavaScript. And so I think I'm real excited to find out what that means and open that can of worms. But as usual, we're going to start with our triumphs and fails. And today it's my turn to go first. So I'm going to start with a triumph. So at work today, we deleted our first feature flag, not the first feature flag that we created, but the, this is the first one that we've deleted because the feature has now become permanent and went well. And we got to remove like 150 lines of code. That was the original implementation. It just felt good. I'm happy about that. Yay. Yeah. And it's using your semaphore project you built. It is. Cool. Just for yeah. Cool. 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 That's exciting. Future flags, yeah. man. It's gonna you're gonna you're gonna become addicted. <laughs> changing the changing the, the, the game, the paradigm here. I have now so, transitioned from getting LinkedIn information about Launch Darkly to now I get emails promoting them. So apparently my ads are all about Launch Darkly right same. now. So I'm getting it all <laughs> over the place. Thanks, Ben. Listening. Thanks, Ben. You're welcome. Thanks, Ben. Yeah. So mine's simple today. I feel like I usually drone on and on. I figured I'd keep it simple. So that's me. Ben, what do you got going on? So in past episodes, I've talked about how at work, I do things very quietly and I try to fly under the radar because of political reasons. But on Friday, I made a demo video and I put it into our one of our Slack channels. We have this product TV channel, which is where we post demos of features that we've released. And I gathered the courage to make a demo of something I had built and I put it out there. And I, I sort of put it under the guise of embracing this whole MIP, this minimum informable product movement that we're doing at work, which is like even pre-MVP to get user feedback. It's I had never heard it before. Apparently our, someone hmm. at the company coined it. It's like MVP of concept, right? Not even MVP of implementation. Just Yeah, but like I'm sort of just using that as cover to, to okay. basically say, hey, company, this is so exciting that we're doing all this iteration and moving fast and getting user feedback. And in the spirit of that, here's something I built. And I'd love some feedback on it. So I figure if anyone calls me out for doing it, then I can be like, well, that seems very countercultural at this point based <laughs> on a lot of the other stuff we've been talking about. So, but I haven't gotten in trouble yet. So I'm going to consider that a pretty good triumph. <laughs> Ask nice. for forgiveness, not permission. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> How about you, Tim? What do you got going on? So, I mean, the week's been kind of short. We had Labor Day weekend just recently, and we went and saw Hamilton, which was awesome. (laughs) Nice to be able to get it. We were supposed to go see it during COVID, but, you know, they rescheduled it. And actually, COVID's even worse right now, but we're vaccinated, (laughs) so whatever. But as far as like a work triumph, I'm I'm getting more comfortable with Scala and particularly testing Scala. And it, it kind of helps that I've got other people working on it with me now. So just... Yeah, working with the stack that I've kind of inherited and yeah, just feel more comfortable with it, actually being able to do some real good stuff with Scala. I've always been impressed with the language itself. Just I don't have opportunity to work on it. So having worked on the Scala play framework the past week and actually having stuff compile actually feels really pretty good. (laughs) 
So you were already supporting a Scala project, though, right? You're right, just now but, actually getting to develop and learn with it as opposed to supporting well, what I mean, so, existed? I mean, a lot of the stuff I was doing is just like changing some views and things. Yeah, just small pretty simple. Yeah, yeah, small changes. But now we've got into some pretty actual like architectural type changes. So you're and, getting uh, a code code. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So nice. that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's awesome. So feeling good about it. I mean, any, any new language you can put under your belt and start to feel confident about is is good. So It goes great when you actually understand it when you're learning it too. Right. That I mean, helps. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's been a lot of uh, trial and fail, but, but it's been worth it. So been putting the time in. So that's me. And you're doing you testing. And you're testing. And, and doing testing. Yeah, testing. testing the Scala. So yeah, so it's so much easier to test Scala than it is to test Cold Fusion, in my opinion. I, maybe it's just because the testing framework is already there and it runs extremely fast compared yeah. to what Cold Fusion and Lucy does. But mm-hmm. yeah, so just being able to run those tests has been, has been a, yeah, I feel like a real developer now. I mean, it's only been what? <laughs> I'm a real boy. 25 years. So. Congrats. You're doing How great. You, Carol? Good job. I guess I'm going to break up the streak here. I'm going to go with what? a failure. Yeah, I'm sorry, guys. No full triumphs this week. So I've been sick and kind of just recovering from not feeling so great. And I am really tired of people talking to me. I am just so <laughs> over this. Well, you're in the right place. Uh, yeah. I, I like go look at Slack and then I just close it. I don't even respond to anything. And that's terrible because I'm a remote engineer. I really should be responding. And then I open like gmail and i'm like oh i have 50 emails i need to go respond to like why are people asking me questions i just don't feel good i don't want to work like but i really want to work because i don't want to lay in bed either but i just don't i'm not peopling very well right now and it's not good for me mm. so been done that ho- his whole career he's fine so <laughs> I, actually on uh, facebook someone had just posted this meme it was this angry looking cat and the caption was i don't even like the people i like I'm I'm feeling that right now. I'm totally on board with that meme. Yeah. Yeah. You're just not feeling well. You'll uh, you'll get past that. That's not you normally. No, normally I do pretty well, but it's just exhausting. So I'm just ignoring people and I'm sure someone's going to get mad at me eventually, but we'll see. Is there a way? So first of all, I think that it's very healthy to recognize it. Is there a way that you can sort of shake yourself up? Like some kind of procedure or I don't know. uh, (laughs) The the word is escaping me, but just like a a thing that you can always do in in these situations. So actually I was feeling it like this whole week. So today I got up, I took a shower, I put on makeup and I brushed my hair and I was like, I'm going to actually put on like not gym clothes. I was like, maybe if I make myself feel like I'm going to get up and do something, then I'll feel more like connected to people in a way. And maybe for like the first couple hours, it was good. But then I'm like, nope, I'm over it again. Close (laughs) slack again. I put the little, I did this time put the little sick emoji on my uh, status. So people know why I'm not responding so quickly. My little routine when i try to get out of it is just to make my bed most of it i don't care Mm -hmm. i'm I'm not a bed maker normally but it's like i'm like you know what i don't feel any structure or purpose right now i'll make my bed it's so easy uh, i don't know if you can see right now behind me i actually made my bed so that's a simple one yeah i usually either go on a walk Uh, i live on a circle so mm -hmm. i'll walk around circle once or twice or i'll switch my desk like if i've been sitting i'll stand or if i've been standing i'll sit I did do that today several times. I'm back to sitting again, but eh. I think it's just because I'm sick mostly. Yeah, you'll you'll get over it. (laughs) Yeah. Great audio. Thanks. Thanks for that, girl. Can I do like a combined try? uh, There's there's no rules here. Yeah. It's the same. It's the same thing, but there's a win and there's a fail. Um, so the, the win is that I'm here in Croatia right now, uh, calling to you from, I guess, Southeast Europe yeah. <laughs> because of a blog post that I made called the third age of JavaScript that became a talk. And I've given it, uh, three times on, I think three different continents now. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> and, uh, but this is the first one that's an in-person conference. They really set you up in Europe on you know, all, all expenses paid and stuff nice. like that. The, the fail is that I got. Common, the common cold. Oh. It was so nice to meet people in person, but you know how at conferences, like diseases go around. It seems like every speaker, yep. I just met some of them, came down with the same cold. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's, it's a bit norming in a sense. It's like comforting to know like, okay, if things are back to normal, even the bad stuff is also back <laughs> yeah, to normal. Yeah, like I can catch a so, cold. Yeah, that's funny. Well, I hope you get feeling better. Yeah. A, a little bit, especially, um, I guess, when in like a social setting. I, lo- I love talking to people. So this is just heartwarming. I to can't me. wait to be back in person conferences like that is just so exciting to me. I know I just said I don't like talking to people, but that's right now. Typically, yeah. I love talking to people. I miss conferences. 
where else have you given the talk? Global Scope Australia. Mm-hmm. And then I think one of the US conferences, I don't even remember, <laughs> oh, no. which is a bit embarrassing because I should have more care or I, I don't know, like a mental space for the conferences that do invite me to speak. But I mean, I, I just have other things going on in yeah. my life. I, but I when it's really virtual, it's kind of hard to, it's kind of hard to place it, right? It's like, yeah. it just, it would happen at your desk somewhere. I know. Yeah. I was just going to say that I hear Croatia is beautiful and it's becoming like a big tourist destination. I don't know if uh, you being there, it lives up to the hype. It definitely does. So it's in a, the, this conference is the InfoBip shift conference it's, it's in its 10th year of running wow. and it was in this tiny city called zadar it's like not even the top one or two cities of croatia so i expected it to be like a kind of, honestly kind of crappy <laughs> small town and then we went to the city and it looks like prague wow. um, oh, no. the city center like the the liveliness of like all the people there and the restaurants and like the music and yeah it's i mean it, it just wowed me again of like how beautiful old europe mm-hmm. can be and yeah i mean yeah, it's a really nice place to go for i guess a, a getaway we're at a resort, so I guess that's also a very nice thing. So you have like swim out pools right into the sea with the mountains in the background. Mm. It's very, very wow. scenic. Very All cool. right, we need, we need to get at this conference. We need to figure yeah, out how can we get yeah. an invite here? How, how, how can we need to figure out how to get to talk there? I'm going to start my blog uh, post for the no, fourth no, age no. of JavaScript right now. There you yeah. go. Yeah. Exactly. And I'll do the fifth. You know what you do, though? So conferences are always keen on promoting uh, the next conference, right? Like that's, they need to get bus and seats for the next event. Mm-hmm. So next year you could be like the live panel podcast and then they could use that as collateral for like the next thing. And I've seen that in quite a few American conferences, but it doesn't seem to have arrived on European conferences hmm. yet. Good. Good. Adam, income. go submit. Yeah, let's right. Do, let's do it, man. <laughs> do it. Race right. for 2020. We'll work on that. 2020. 22. You are 22. bad at yeah. Yeah, calendars. No. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going back in time and stopping Corona. <laughs> you don't I, I don't calendar. You don't people. You don't, I don't calendar. I don't people well. You don't calendar well. There you go. All right. Who, who is this dude? <laughs> <laughs> who is this guy? Yeah, he's on. The, well, I mean, he's obviously oh he's a big guy, right? Like he's uh, he's got so many cu- speaking gigs. He forgets where he's been speaking. I know, right? Yeah. I mean, so just give us a little background. I mean, just for our listeners who don't uh, yeah, know sure. you, we obviously know who you are, and you're fantastic and awesome. But you know, for our listeners who don't, you know, those couple, let them know who you are. Yeah, the two or three. Yeah, the quick sort of two minute version is that I'm Sean, I'm from Singapore, born and raised, went over to the US to study finance. Then that was my first career from since I was, ever since I was in high school, I was captivated by the world of finance. I thought people who had money controlled everything. Uh, they kind of they do. do. But, um, <laughs> and I spent uh, my six years working in the finance industry, working my way up to the hedge fund that I really wanted to work at and then finding out that I did wasn't a fit. I didn't like it. It was both stressful and I wasn't that great at it. So realize I think t- technology is eating the world, the software is eating the world. And I wanted to be a part of that. I wanted to create stuff instead of just invest in stuff. So that's what really got me interested in coding. I switched careers at the age of 30 and did the boot camp and everything, rose up kind of uh, as a software engineer through Two Sigma and then developer relations at Netlify. AWS and now I'm head of develop now head of developer experience at temporal.io. So that's the quick sort of career summary. And then as a side project, I started blogging in 2018, mostly because I felt very bored at work. <laughs> and I think at work, when you start out, you basically only get the mentors that you have at work, right? And it's kind of luck of the draw. They could be good, they could be bad. But when you engage in the broader tech sphere, you get to pick your own mentors externally. And that really accelerated my career, mm-hmm. particularly just in getting involved in the New York tech scene and getting starting to blog in the React uh, ecosystem. So I got pretty friendly with like all the, the React core team members. I started giving a lot of talks. My first big talk was at React Rally, which is like the premier React conference. And then it, things snowball from there. Once you're w- well-known as a speaker, people start inviting you because you're a known quantity. You're, you're like, you're at least going to draw some people and you're going to probably at least give a good talk. So I try to do that for my conference organizers as much as possible to, so they keep asking me that. <laughs> but I don't want to be a full-time influencer because I think that's also a very dark path that a lot of people are on. So I kind of want to have the day job and, and do that work, but then also try to extract lessons from it and share it because which a lot of people don't mm. do. So that's a lot of what my blogging and my speaking is, is about. I like that approach. Cool. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Do you watch a... Uh, Billions by any chance? 
Billions is the best. The first couple of seasons, yeah. it got a bit too uh, real for me. <laughs> so. Well, because there's a lot of finance, but then especially in the later seasons, there's a lot more technology and, and Yeah, they mix the two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, seems like it might yeah. be right up your alley. But uh, you're already watching. Okay. I, I, do, I do appreciate that, what you just said about just not wanting just to be an influencer or maybe an evangelist, because I, I think a lot of people get in that role. Sorry, Ray Camden, but they, they kind of, they only like kind of delve on the top of things, right? It's it's not like they don't, they don't really get, yeah, it's a very shallow pool that they play in. It's, it's just dealing with like hello worlds and some simple cases. And if you're a person who really loves, loves technology, you may want to go a little bit deeper. So. I have complicated feelings about this because at the end of the day, there will just numerically always be a lot more beginners than there are intermediates and and advanced. And it's never a bad thing to want to help more beginners get started. I think it's just personally for me, intellectually, not that fulfilling to essentially be stuck in tutorial Mm -hmm. hell, but where I just like write like hello world uh, or like beginner demos again and again. And I wanted to go deep and I wanted to learn how to manage people. I wanted to learn how to help technologies cross the chasm, which is which is also another phrase that I really love. Yeah. So yeah, there's all sorts of paths and they're all fine. Like I think the sort of intro path and the sort of influencer path is a decent living mm-hmm. and I will never begrudge anyone their livelihood. So yeah. yeah, that's just a personal preference. All right. So now I know who this dude is, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I, I tend to jump the gun like that. Yeah. So the third age of JavaScript, did you coin that term or did you build on somebody else's? I did. Cool. I did. I went on a run one day and I was like, yo, there's something going on. There's something in the water in, J- in JavaScript land. And I looked around for different analogies for it and I came up with, the, with this term and it stuck. I can see why. Yeah. Can you, it makes you, sense. I don't even yeah. know what it means, but it's like, I'm like, I want to know. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And the, accidentally, it was a very good title game. I, I didn't really think about it that way. I, I mostly was just making observations. So let me explain the thesis in, in, in brief so that people can follow along. Mm-hmm. So the thesis is that every roughly 10 years or so, there's a changing of the guard in JavaScript and the thematic investments or the, the, when you step back in the long arc of history, what changes over that course of 10 years actually has certain very identifiable themes to it. So the first age was sort of in between 1997 to 2007, 2008, where the language was essentially standardized from ES1 all the way to ES5 and ES6. From the, the second age, which started in 2009 all the way to 2019, and 2009 was kind of the miraculous year. So in the exact same year, CommonJS was born, Node.js was born, Chrome was born, NPM was born, and I'm probably forgetting a couple others, but very foundational technologies that we still use today was all born in 2009. And the rest of the 10 years was just kind of exploring the implications of those uh, technologies and building the user land ecosystem around the finalized language. And so now that sort of has run its course and we are starting to see emergence of people rebuilding things and and, uh, innovating things. I think when the pandemic struck, a lot of people sort of took a pause and then they really furiously went to work on open Absolutely, source. Absolutely. Yeah. And you could see all these, yeah. you could see all these projects coming out of the woodwork for like, and you're like, okay, I, I'm just overwhelmed. So what is all this? So what the third age of JavaScript is a theory is a hypothesis. We're still living in it. So I don't know what it is. Right. But it's a hypothesis that there are common themes to this. It, it's a framework for organizing news that comes in. And uh, yeah, people are really liking it for the descriptive nature of like, okay, where does this new tool or this new project fit within what I'm going to use in 10 years, right? Let's make those investments uh, with a clearer goal of understanding what is what's what we really want to change and improve. So you said you started when you were 30 in your 30s, early 30s is when you entered. Okay, yep. so when, like where in the sphere of this did you jump in? Like where was your, at what point did you get in this? You try to figure out how old he is. Oh. I'm not trying to figure out how old you are. I'm 36. So I was in college at the beginning of what you're considering the second age. Like I was taking classes. I finished in 2010. So I, everything I know is based off of known, based off of Angular, based off of React. And that's my starting point. So I was just curious of where your start was. And Mine was Pearl. (laughs) 
Ooh. <laughs> I'm flexing. When, when people ask me how many, when people ask me how many years of experience I have, like my response is that I learned uh, Lego Mindstorms when I was 12. I started Basic when I was 14. I started Excel when I was 16, yeah. and then VBA, and then Python, and Haskell, and then finally JavaScript. But at neither, at none of those times until I was 30, did I have the title of software engineer. Got you. So you had so the background for it. How many years of experience I have? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. His origin story. Um, origin. <laughs> but I mean, as a, you can't be sort of our age, like millennials, sort of 30s, and miss that. I'm Gen X. I'm, and, I'm, and, I'm and, strictly and, Gen I'm 50 years old. I'm strictly Gen X. Yeah, uh, sorry. Tim's our token old guy. Our, our age, our age enough. There you go. There you, you go. Noticed, there you, go. Us, us enough. Yep. you noticed Flash and, and Action Script. You noticed Silverlight. You noticed all these competing standards. And we, we, we really didn't know it at the time, but we were experiencing the near death of JavaScript. Yeah. Right, like everyone forking to their own proprietary mm-hmm. implementation, you have to download this Java extension or this Flash extension in your browser for the thing to even work. So it really had a near death experience, and honestly, the only thing that saved it actually, I can trace it down to an exact moment mm-hmm. in 2008 at in Oslo when the uh, maintainers for the ECMAScript 3.1 spec and the uh, maintainers for ECMAScript 4, which were they were kind of deadlocked for five years, they came to, in the same room and agreed on what. ECMAScript 5 was going to mm. be. And that was the the sort of healing moment for JavaScript. And that enabled 2009 where everything else kicked off. So like it could just like, have gone a very different path. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds very Being an open standard really helped, right? So I mean, when I was programming back in the 90s, VBScript was our go-to, right? It, we were like, oh, Microsoft, it's going to rule the world forever. And, you know, they're always going to oh support it. And so we backed VBScript much to our chagrin and then later had to rewrite everything in, in, in Java. But I think the fact that it is open is probably the best thing. You don't want the, these walled gardens that when it starts losing money or just loses popularity, it's gone. Yeah. Well, it, it's still complicated, right? It's not exactly open right now. TC39 is a large body where corporations buy seats and decide the future of JavaScript for you. How happy are you with right. that? They decide on a yearly cadence, incrementally feature by feature, instead of having a holistic view of how everything fits together. How happy are you with that? There's a significant debate on the process by which millions of developers are affected and the people who make the calls are like sitting in a room mm. somewhere. Um, but it means someone has to make <laughs> the decisions, right? I mean, uh, yeah, we didn't elect them, so, Tim. We didn't, no. <laughs> Well, maybe you That's didn't. Right. I, I I got an invite to the elections, but <laughs> the elders of the internet called me. Right. In one of the, uh, I think it was in the second age of JavaScript, you talk about, I think you mentioned Douglas Crockford and the the good parts of JS book, but I, I forget sometimes that Crockford, I believe, introduced the world to the concept of JSON, JavaScript object notation, and like no you know, how revolutionary yeah. that mm. was and how like the that's like just like the impact that's had it's like john Rezek introduced jquery and the world changes forever and like mm-hmm. douglas crockford introduces json and the world changes forever yep the world turns upside down i think it's humbling at, probably for each of these guys like when they did it at the time, it didn't seem like a, that big of a deal. It, it probably was one of many projects that could have worked, could not have worked. And for whatever factor or reason, it managed to catch on. And there are probably a lot of other contributors that contributed to their popularity as well. So I try not to hero worship too much in, for these people just because they're just trying stuff out mm-hmm. and theirs happened to work. Whereas there are a lot of other probably equally smart ideas that just didn't work out for some, some other reason. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. one thing that's really interesting is I went to see, I think it was Gotham JS conference, maybe like a decade ago. And Douglas Crockford was giving a talk and he was talking about this new type system he was trying to develop and, and sell people on. And he was joking that a lot of times in the world of computer science, you have to essentially wait for the old guard to die before new ideas become really <laughs> popular. But it, it feels like in the last five, six, seven years, like, that's no longer true. Good ideas bubble up and then they become super popular and then they evolve and then they get torn down and then new things replace them. But it, it definitely feels like there isn't this, you have to wait for the old guard to die anymore. New things are happening all the time, which is exciting, but it's also exhausting. So that kind of segues nicely into something that I wanted to bring up too, was that, so what you were just talking about there, Ben, reminds me of the buzzword uh, JavaScript fatigue that was going around a lot a couple of years ago. And I feel like it's let up a little bit. And I think that might be one of the symptoms that Sean was referring to in the, for the third age was like collapsing layers, right? 
So things are getting easier because the yeah. tools are, are taking over more responsibility for us, right? Yeah, it's a, it's about consolidation because we've worked out the main functionalities of the tool chains that we need. So now it's about like, let's combine them. So we're not doing duplicate work. It's faster, it's simpler at its core. And uh, yeah, I, I think the end result is less JavaScript fatigue. There are trade-offs. There's always trade-offs. So I'll give you one, which is that these tools are much more complex internally. So they require a lot more development. So actually every single tool that I mentioned in my post on the 30 show JavaScript is now a VC-backed company. Right. So the business model changed. It's no longer volunteers working in open source, like kind of like hacking and stuff on weekends. There's a paid maintainership because it requires a lot more upfront development cost. But what is that going to give us in terms of the business model of the tools that we use? Right. So are we going to see ads? Are we going to, you know, pay subscription membership? Like that, maybe that's fine. Right. But uh, this is a very untested ground that we're entering right now. So what would there, are there any other characteristics? of the third age besides collapsing layers? Yeah, so I go into a couple. So the first is, there are the two main categories, and then one of them is has two more subcategories. So the first one is the death of IE11, mm-hmm. which is a huge generational Yay. thing, right? <laughs> and, and the rise of ES modules, which they're kind of tied at the hip. They're not exactly the same. I mean, they're not the same thing, but they're tied at the hip because you can't have ES modules take off until IE11 is dead. And I think this is the year. So the... Primary, a lot of companies have, have dropped it from Microsoft themselves, dropping IE11 to like LinkedIn, to Twitter, all this in the past year since I started tracking this. And every single framework like Vue, Angular, and it's felt in, I, I'm not sure about React actually, but yeah, they've all at least announced plans or they're introducing plans. And WordPress, which is obviously like 30% of the internet, <laughs> has also announced that they're dropping IE11 support. The main thing, like all these are incremental. They're like individual projects, individual companies. <clears throat> the main metric that I'm really looking at is the U.S. government dropping IE11. When that goes, everything else goes, right? So um, what point at which do they do that? So you can go to analytics.gov or something like that. I don't actually know the precise URL, but there's a web analytics publicly for the browser stats of people visiting U.S. government websites. And their policy is that you have to be above, if for a browser share above 2%, it has to be supported by the U.S. government. In November of 20, November last year, this number is that 3.6% of people visiting U.S. government websites on IE11. This has now dropped to 1.6. Nice. So it's under the 2% mark. It's been dropping like a few, you know, 0 point something every month. And at some point this year, I think the U.S. government is going to announce that they're dropping IE11 support. So once that goes, a lot of enterprises will just go like, all right, you know, we no longer have an excuse. Everyone's moved over now, and it's even okay for the U.S. government to, to not support yeah, it. Yeah, analytics.usa.gov, um, and, and IE11 is at 1.4 as of right now. Oh, man. Oh, jeez. I can't wait to <laughs> not support Yeah, it's really it dropping fast. Yeah. Partially, I think there's a reason to this. Why so fast so soon? Because uh, it, it hovered at this sort of 4-ish percent mark uh, for a long time. What The reason really is Edge, is the Miss Microsoft being the heroes here introducing IE11 support in Edge, meaning that you can upgrade your machine safely and still use your IE11 applications without rewriting it. And and this actually solves the enterprise use case. Like if you're like, I work at a big co, we don't have the fancy machines that you guys have. We don't have the, the, the budget to change any of the applications and they all assume IE11. You can now run it on modern machines with Microsoft Edge in IE11 compatibility mode. So Microsoft did a lot of work yeah. to kill their own software. Pour one out for the engineers that have to maintain that. so that's the first section right the first section is the rise of es modules so what does that enable right like it enables new tools like vite and snowpack and uh, a lot of lighter packages like just the sheer elimination of the need to transpile because every browser now is evergreen that actually makes for a lot less javascript shipped over the wire and that makes for a faster internet so we're all uh, pro that (laughs) but yes modules themselves like they, they not only improve user experience they also improve developer experience right and and that's what we're seeing with yeah, ES Build and Vite and all these uh, new build tools that just assume ES modules. They don't assume CJS. And so, yeah, even so, the node side and the and the client sorry node side and the client side are both moving to ES modules. And I think that's a very fundamental thing. What's ironic here, I'll note for the historians, is that there's actually some debate as to whether this ES modules were even necessary. So. Uh, have we just spent a few years wrestling with different mo- module formats only to find out that actually it wasn't a big deal at all? So Devin Govett, <laughs> who maintains Parcel, one of the big uh, three bundlers, actually argues that common JS is fine. We could have stuck with it. 
and, and he writes abundantly. Because that's what Node.js uh, uses, right? Yes. Yeah. Just as a convention, as a quirk of history, like no one really sat down and designed this thing. Someone just came up with like a unifying format for all the pre-existing module formats and that became CommonJS. But then we were like, let's, let's standardize it and use this completely different syntax. And that's a lot of toolchain churn and pain for comparatively not that much improvement. So it's a very hot take, but I like it because it comes from someone who's so credible, who understands deeply what it means to write a bundler and to code split and all that. And he's saying that we didn't need ES modules. Cool. Yeah, historical notes. (laughs) And then so uh, moving on to like the second part, which is kind of the more interesting part of the second age of JavaScript, which is, uh, sorry, the third age of JavaScript, which is the collapsing layers and then the polyglot tooling. Right. So we talked about collapsing layers in the sense that my favorite thing about the collapsing layers, Adam, is uh, a historical fact about word processor. So in like the 70s and 80s, word processing software used to come sort of with with a single mandate, which is like you type stuff and the text showed up on screen. If you wanted to do uh, page counts, if you wanted to do uh, landscape layout. If you wanted to do uh, all the other things that you see in the options menu, if you're a word processor, these were plugins. These are separately what? bought. These are separately installed and maintained. Yeah. So there's a fantastic post by Benedict Evans that kind of goes into this because it, it's very relevant to what does, what is a job and does that definition of that job evolve over time? So when a, when a new piece of software first comes out, it does one thing and that's great. And then you, you use a whole plugin ecosystem to fill out uh, the, the gaps that users need. But eventually the definition changes itself and we start just expecting a standard set of plugins or, or features in every piece of software that you use of that category. So his argument was actually about platforms. So like what is, comp- what is competitive? Like when the iPhone uh, launches a native feature that used to be developed it as third party is that anti-competitive well maybe not right <laughs> because like just enough people need it that maybe it should just be built in the right. platform so similarly i think the argument here is that we used to have this unix philosophy in javascript right one one thing does one thing right. well but i think the definition of the thing of the job to be done is changing in the sense that we now require linting we now require form, form, form <laughs> oh, <thank form>. you. <laughs> he said the magic word <laughs> <laughs> what <laughs> linting? Yeah, I don't. I, I hate don't linting. like linting. I hate linting. But well, I mean, I'm a fan. But yeah, it's all installed together, yeah. right? So that you don't have to reach for a separate tool, and they use the same AST, which is actually on a fundamental basis much more efficient. You're not parsing and validating, and then working at at different. Like these, this is the reason why your build your boot times are slow is because these all these tools don't have any knowledge of each other and they don't work together. They're not in the same AST pass, and you have to configure them. So you have like twenty different config files all floating around. Get your ESLint yep. to work together with yep. your TypeScript and all that. So it's very common, and this will go away because we're the definition of what the basic tooling requires for for any development environment is changing to a more comprehensive definition yeah so the that's the death of unix unix philosophy and then the final bit before i drag on too much (laughs) is the the bit about polyglot tooling which um is also another development not very user-facing but you'll see it in the speed so people are using essentially saying like every js tool needs to be written in js so that js people can contribute back to their tool they're finding that's actually not so true because people don't really contribute yeah that's going away (laughs) yeah we're seeing that Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, the core of every tool should be written in a systems language because that's a very hot path that runs that gets runs run millions of times a day, and no one in the JS world really touches that stuff anyway. So we should really try to optimize it for speed rather than for contributions, yeah. uh, which are so people are switching tools the, the core over to Go and Rust. We'll see which one wins essentially, but maybe it doesn't matter. It, it just matters what the maintainers are most comfortable with because anytime you have a systems core and scripting shell is, is what I call this theory, that's kind of the best of both worlds because users care most about the plugins and the interfaces that they can write to extend the tool that they're using. Whereas the core of it, just needs to be fast mm. and reliable. reliable. Yep. Mm. Yep. That's the key. Yeah. I see a relationship here between the tools moving away from being written in JavaScript to the relationship to the companies now that are building these tools being venture funded, right? So like they can pay somebody to work there and I'm of two minds about it. I, it makes it harder for me to to contribute if it's something I wanted to do, right? Like, in, there are certain scenarios where I would be willing to go up and, and write a feature for React if it's something I really wanted. 
But if all of a sudden React was written in Rust, I'd be like, well, sorry, I don't have time to do that, right? I only have so many uh, night and weekend hours available to me. Yeah, but there's trade-offs, right? Nobody's saying this is a pure yeah. win, but I'm, I am kind of predicting that this is what we've seen early on so far, one or two years into the 32 JavaScript is going to be the, the overwhelming theme for the rest of uh, the, that period. Mm-hmm. And this period will come to an end as well. So uh, part of my humbleness, I guess, is that is saying that I, we don't know what happens in the distant future. We don't know how long JavaScript itself is going to live. So I always in- inject a mention of like, we, we might be thrashing about for these t- next 10 years <laughs> only to find that the next wave comes and the tooling changes again, yeah. uh, the languages that we use change again. We have to be prepared for that. But I don't necessarily mean that, I don't necessarily think that means that we sit back and ignore all of it because it's just fascinating yeah. how much mm. people are trying to improve development and the, the way we deliver experiences to users. It's really great. Well, e- even just in the last few years, I think about Webpack and it feels like Two or three years ago, people were looking at Webpack like this is a solved problem. We have this really difficult compiling problem and the, the Webpack people solved it and now it's not a problem. And now a lot of people are saying like, oh, Webpack, who even uses Webpack anymore? That feels so outdated. Like everyone should be using Vite and, and these other um, more advanced builders that I don't know are more specialized. I don't even know what the differences are, but I mean, to go from such an extreme that this is a solved problem to who even still uses that just in the span of like, it feels like two years is, is kind of crazy. Our, our imaginations are limited by what we see mm-hmm. around us. And a lot of us don't spend a lot of time thinking about what else could be, but certain individuals do. So Evan Wallace, of uh, who's actually CTO of Figma, wrote ES Build as a proof of existence <laughs> that could be a tool that would that could be way faster than Webpack because he was just annoyed at Webpack in, internally within Figma. So he wrote it. He showed that you could do it 100 times faster. You could bundle 100 times faster than Webpack. And then it was off the races, right? Everyone is now seeing, like, you, you kind of broke the four-minute mile and now everyone's trying to, mm-hmm. to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. So this, these things come in spurts because of certain individuals who are, who are brave enough and crazy enough to actually try throwing away the existing tooling where it's solved. For them, it's not good enough. Webpack was an MVP, right? It was just an MVP. It was, and he didn't actually intend to maintain it and build into a thing. He was like, proof of existence. Now that you lot know this, <laughs> know this thing exists, why don't the rest of you go build out the rest of it? But I think he enjoyed playing with it so much that it developed into a fully maintained project, which is great for all of us because he's amazing. Yeah. But also it's interesting that it might not win because right. Next.js, which is the kind of the predominant framework of our time or meta framework of our time, Next.js did not pick ESBuild. When they dropped Webpack, they went to SWC instead, which is the bundler a compiler built in Rust. So for them, whatever technical trade-offs, it's not about languages, it's more about design choices, mm-hmm. right? For whatever reason, SWC was better. But all of this was just kicked off by this sense that we could have something better. And I think ESBuild was a very critical moment in that journey. So so Sean slash Swix, I want to <laughs> ask you, so don't take this, I'm not being condescending. Compared to me, you're a young guy. I lived through the 70s, 80s, 90s of computers. You seem to have a real depth of history about like the past, which I don't normally see in p- younger people that, that haven't lived through it, right? So how did you get to that? You have a rich wealth of knowledge about how we got to where we are and what was in the past and what it became. H- how did you... I mean, explain to me how that happened since you were like in finance during all that time. (laughs) Yeah. Well, this is a lot of how finance research is done. So I'm kind of applying a lot of the things I learned in finance to my approach to coming up in the tech world, right? You do your background research, you do your due diligence on the history of things. Uh, You understand the trends and you try to predict where that takes you going forward. So part of something I do and I advise people is to follow the graph, right? Who, like when you start to learn the the world as it is today, who made those things and what were the situations under under which they made it? What did they replace? And what, and those people, they probably have moved on to the next thing by the time that you came around to it. What are they working on? And so, and then follow that graph to like, you know, who do they follow and who inspires them? And once you build this graph of prime movers in your industry, you have a pretty strong knowledge of like the, the driving forces behind everything. So I do this, all of this, partially because I'm, I'm a history nerd. I do love uh, trying to explain the world as it is today. But more importantly, it's a framework under which I can actually think about what I want to dedicate my own time to because I want to make an impact as well, right? So understanding how people have done it in the past at least gives some format. There's a certain 
problem with this. It's called the narrative fallacy, which is uh, Jeff Bezos' mm-hmm. term for it, which is when you try to explain things in the past, everything seems to fit so neatly together. It's it's like, oh, of course you had a one-line explanation for 10 years of work, but like it's never that neat, right? So I do, I'm always looking out for narrative violations where the, the common sense or the common trope is one way and then the truth is slightly different or a, a little bit uglier. And I love those. I just find that really fascinating. So you're applying the idea of finance where you're watching where the money goes, who's investing in what's growing, where they come from to the idea of computer programming. And just, I mean, that's just super fascinating. I've not, I'm going to have to digest this. This is going to take me a minute. I want to be clear, like, it's not intentional. It's just like my default. Right. But I mean, that that way of analysis is not one I've ever kind of thought of. So, yeah. Yeah. So I have a podcast I kind of listen to called Chit Chat Money, where they go into sort of stock analysis. And when they start, when you start talking about a stock, they don't start, they don't talk about it as it is today. They talk about the origin story. Mm-hmm. They talk about what the, the key, the, who the key, key players were, like the strategies that they did in order to get to where they are today. Cause a lot of that is continuing destiny is a lot of that is culture. And yeah, just having a deep understanding of how these things start, I, I guess really gives you a better information than just being buffeted about by news and data points and like benchmarks and things that are very momentary in time. The things that don't change are the long running trends in history. Mm. Yeah. Mind blown. That's okay. So here's a question you might be kind of uniquely poised to answer. As somebody who comes from a finance background, who has a lot of experience in tech and who thinks deeply about both, we hear a lot about there being a bubble in the tech company funding. What do you think, when we started talking about all these companies, that the tooling being now backed by companies, if there is a bubble and it were to pop and the floor drops out from these companies, what's going to happen to the JavaScript ecosystem? And what do you think the likelihood of that is? I mean... What's fantastic about the JavaScript ecosystem is it got by on so little funding anyway, yeah. right? We know how that's the default mode. We know how to live in that. That's fine. It's the rest of the economy that was that's going to be in trouble. <laughs> it's like right now, as for us, it were just these are this just play money. Like the amounts that went in into these companies, it's like in the low single digit millions of dollars. That's not <laughs> systemic. That's fine. So I would not be worried about that. I think having, by the way, another skill in finance is understanding base rates understanding that some things have much smaller impact than other things just because you have a sense of the proportions of what normal looks like. And base rate fallacy is very common in terms of cognitive bias. And when you adjust for that kind of thing, you start to have a sense of like what news matters and what news is just is, is more second derivative or third derivative of what's going to happen. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to pretend I understood that. <laughs> No, so, so, you know, like, okay, so uh, Adam is talking about funding mm-hmm. and coming, VC funding coming to JavaScript tool, tooling, whereas where it used to be open source. This is a second derivative change in a sense of like, it's an acceler, it's a, you know, directional change or acceleration rather than an ongoing trend. So we're only seeing limited examples. So it's a spike above the baseline. Uh, exactly. Oh, there you go. There you go. Yeah. Hey. I just, uh, there's a picture in my head right now, which I can't really communicate <laughs> over, over audio, but you get it. Yeah, so it's a spike of a baseline. It's it's abnormal, but that's fine. We'll get whatever utility we can out of that, and then we'll go back to baseline. And there's more investment later. <laughs> we'll take it. As yeah, it comes. yeah, and, and uh, more and more of these does change the baseline, right? It does. But you also have to just take it with a grain of salt because uh, second derivatives are just way noisier than first derivatives, and first derivatives are way noisier than zero derivatives. And so th- that's kind of how I think about all these things. Like, what is a zero zero derivative? It's like the fir- very first principles of like how many developers are out there? Roughly 40 to 50 million. What percent of them are using JavaScript? About 11 million. Like, have your base facts down and understand the total addressable market. And then you start to have some measure of like, okay, when 10,000 people respond to a survey, that sounds like a big number, but it's yeah. tiny compared to the, the entire universe. Right. When 6 million people visit Hacker News every single day, that's that sounds like a big number. That's Hacker News is, is really influential. But there's also 34 million developers who do not visit Hacker News every day, right? Like it gives you a sense of what the baseline is before you go into the first and second derivatives, which are noisier because they change more often. These things don't. I visit when Carol links to it. So. <laughs> It's my morning read. I'm usually on Hacker News. Yeah. So, so it sounds like we have a prognostic. What's the word? Prognosticator. Prognosticator. <laughs> prognosticator. Yeah. Thank you. It sounds like we have a prognosticator here on the show. 
kind of look in your crystal ball here and say who in the next five, six years you think are the winners and losers when it comes to the game that you're looking at. Oh man, the pressure. What game? What game? <laughs> the, the JavaScript, the programming game. I mean, you're talking about the third the age, right? So who's going down? Who's coming up? So I do not identify as a prognosticator. I said, I often say that if I was good at forecasting, I would still be in finance. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> so Fair what point. I do is I'm a journalist. I'm a journalist. I write the first draft of history, right? I, I try to say what's going on now. Trend spotting is what someone called it. And I may be wrong. And I don't particularly have, I don't try to put confidence intervals around what I project. I don't try to pick winners. I, I just say like, this is what's happening now. And this is how it fits in the overall frame of what's going on. And that's about, about as much as I uh, put out publicly. Obviously, in practice, I do have to bet myself on things. So I do think that either ES Build or SWC is a really great build tool option that, that seems to be gaining a lot of traction. And then the layers on top of that, like Vite and Svelte Kit, are, are also very interesting as, as well. And, and we'll see how this all plays out because these kinds of things are more conditional. Like the only thing that takes to invalidate my views is something comes along tomorrow right. that just like, is better on every metric. And then that's not a very foundation, stable foundation to, to build your beliefs on. So you want to build your beliefs on long-term trends, which you think are always going to work. And then you filter the news based on those understanding, based on the, those principles. So I try not to pick winners, essentially. <laughs> but I, I mean, I guess the theory is that with collapsing layers, the everyman and every woman doesn't need to be necessarily concern themselves with the, the Pika and the Snowpack and the Svelte and the, all of those tools if we pick the right meta framework like next or whatever, that's going to configure all that for us. Right. I guess, but uh, there'll still be enough layers uh, where you do need to make a choice in every layer. So uh, that only gets you so far, basically that the collapsing layers philosophy, <laughs> there's a lot of layers. Yeah. So let me, so maybe this will be more helpful. Okay. What I actually care about more is activism. Okay. So what, turned me off about investing was that I was just kind of sitting there, you know, placing my bets at the casino table and maybe they worked out, maybe they didn't, but like, I didn't really have a role to play in that. I was just kind of a parasite, just kind of sitting there and just trying to profit off of other people's work. Um, where you want to get really good is you want to help these companies or these projects win. You, you want to be a, a player in the stage in, in history, right? You want to have been there. You want to have been a, an active agent in that change. And so if you can make change happen, you can profit a lot financially, but then also uh, more importantly, have an impact in the industry. So that's kind of what, what I'm thinking about these days. So, I mean, that's a very grand statement that I just yeah. made. I, I don't uh, know what that means in practice though. So help people cross the chasm, right? So there's a, this is called the Rogers curve of adoption, where it's kind of like a bell curve. When, when a new technology comes along, there's like the kind of the hobbyist, the kind of true believer right. types who don't need documentation, who don't need any support. They just believe in this idea so much that they're just in it. And then there's early adopters who are like, okay, there's a bit of stuff here. There's a bit of proof of concepts. I'm, I'm going to try it out because I have some budget or some time to try something new. And then there's early majority, late majority, and then the stragglers, right? Who, who make up the rest of the population. Right. Those people don't adopt anything until they see well thought out documentation, conferences, books, jobs, functioning job market. There's a certain segment of development, and this makes sense for the majority of technologies that you do, but new technologies will never come along if not for the early right. adopters and the enthusiasts, right? So the idea of crossing the chasm by the way, this is the title of a book that, that also is of the same name that you should read, is that there's a huge gap between the early adopters and the early, early majority, right? The early adopters don't need, kind of don't need as much handholding as the early majority. And there's a huge gap in between. So I've kind of dedicated my own career to helping technologies and companies cross the chasm to fill in the gaps around developer experience, documentation, community, so anything that, that sort to, to get things over the hump, essentially. <laughs> so, so yeah, I'm kind of doing that. I initially started out doing that with React and TypeScript, and I essentially wrote the community React and TypeScript docs. And then I pivoted my focus to Svelte, and I'm working on the Svelte Society now. That I started it uh, two years ago. It's now reached uh, over 10,000 members, and we were working on our fourth conference. So I, do I think Svelte is going to take over the world? Probably not. But I'm just getting incrementally better at making impact. And I think that's more, way more interesting than just sitting in a chair somewhere mm. just pontificating on like who's going to win right anyone can do that any sort of anyone can be right or wrong doesn't matter not fulfilling be a, be an agent in that change so capitalist tim um, has to ask how do you make money off that 
Well, you do it on, with the companies that you adopt, right? So I work at Temporal.io now. I, I left a very high paying job at Amazon to work harder for less money at the startup. <laughs> and, and the only reason that makes any economic sense is that I really believe this thing is going to cross the chasm and I want to help it. And I have equity in that. So that makes a lot of sense, right? If I do this well, it's probably a one or $2 million a year job. If I do it poorly, then I, I'm not going to go poor, but yeah. there is some skin in the game. There's some skin in the game for me yeah. and that's good. I think people should actively push themselves towards more skin in the game rather than just sitting on the sidelines and pontificating on the great people and like who's going to win. And like, you can hear that all day long. Mm. It, it doesn't really, is not a good use of life. I, I don't think. This guy, man, is inspiring me, man. <laughs> Were you just on a podcast talking about Svelte Society? I do a fair amount of podcasts. I, I, which I, I don't know. Like I, I think I just randomly subscribed to a podcast earlier today, and someone was talking about Svelte Society, <laughs> oh. and they were joking about, joking about how like the top hat needs to be in the logo and it's very fancy sounding. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. So you're talking about Web? Uh, yeah, WebRush. That's, that's the one. So that was that you? So there, there are two uh, two other co-founders. No, there's, that's that's Kevin. Eberg Kulabadi from gotcha, Sweden. Gotcha, gotcha. So there's two other co-founders of Svelte Society. So he's the conference guy ah, for us. Ah, okay. Svelte Society sounds like something Andy Warhol would have started. It just sounds, it just, uh, I, I like alliteration yeah. and it's, it sounded more interesting than Svelte Community. So I just kind of went with that. Nice. And now everything starts with Ness. <laughs> <laughs> like our conference is Svelte Summit. Alliteration. Just kind of keep it rolling. One thing that I think maybe is worth mentioning is that when new things get introduced, however, it's not like the entire universe suddenly shifts and everyone's using the new thing. It's almost like Schrodinger's cat. If I understand that theory, it's like when something new gets introduced, the universe splits and now there's a new universe where everyone's using the new thing. And there's an old universe where everyone is continuing to use the old thing because there's all these legacy applications that continue to exist. And just because some new compiler comes out, doesn't mean that the hundreds of thousands of webpack based projects suddenly go away. And, and I wonder if there's a downside to things moving so rapidly where it becomes difficult to attract talent and to maintain projects that are using older technologies. I mean, not a month goes by where someone doesn't say to me, like, oh, how do you even find Cold Fusion developers? I mean, how far are we away from being like, how do you even attract Webpack developers that can work on my project that I started four years ago? It, it, it seems like there is a, we're like, you're dancing on the edge a little bit when stuff moves so quickly. I think there can be maybe some drawbacks. I hear you. Um, yeah, I, I, there's definitely a sense of that. I guess when people, the U.S. government throws stuff in COBOL, <laughs> and they're trying desperately to find COBOL developers, right? The state of New Jersey was like desperately yeah, yeah, looking yeah. for anyone and everyone who, who does COBOL. I think, again, this. let's be clear about the scale at which we're talking about here, right? These innovations, maybe they'll, they'll come and go in, in, a, in the span of a year. And it's a real toss-up as to whether or not they have staying power. But Webpack has been around for about 10 years now, it'll probably be around for another 10 years, right? So like this is called the Lindy effect, right? Like where uh, the probability of, of something that's continuing to exist is directly proportionally correlated with how long it's already mm -hmm. existed. So you try to base on that and understand, yeah, I mean, we talk a lot about tech new technology. It's very easy for people to get excitable about new technology, but the definition, part of the definition of a senior developer is understanding how to merge that in together with legacy, right? Because there's just always going to be a mathematically larger amount of legacy software than there is new software. So it's actually a lot of the, often a lot of the junior developers who are always talking about these new names <laughs> because they, they don't have any baggage and that's fantastic. And we should, we should encourage that energy because this is like kind of the lifeblood of what is to come. But when you're talking about maintaining serious software that users use and, and businesses depend on, you have to understand how to integrate it with legacy tech and to migrate when to migrate it and when to just stick with it i think it's an art i don't necessarily know of a better way myself like we kind of kicked off this conversation with uh, a discussion of feature flags and that seems to be the overwhelming way that people manage legacy and manage migrations i love feature flags i got so excited <laughs> so i've been writing for a long time and the code that actually powers my blog is disgusting and it's old and gross and it's embarrassing and i would never want anyone to ever actually look at it and every now and then I get enthused and I'm like, oh, you know what? I should try and rebuild parts of it using one of these fancy new compilers. And I remember maybe like a year or two ago, I started to look at Parcel and I was like, maybe I can get Parcel to, to compile my JavaScript, my CSS. But it's like in order to even buy into the Parcel approach, you have to have a bunch of assumptions in place. Like you have to be able to point at an index file that Parcel can parse in order to follow things. And I'm like, 
I don't have a like a, a plain index file. I have a server side rendered template that's actually like a composite of a lot of different other templates, and like there's nothing to point at. So it's like I can have it compile a JavaScript file, but then like I would have to manually go in and copy hash based file names around to make sure that things are unique. And it's one of those. You know, so. And I'm not sure how true that is. You sh- uh, Parcel is designed as a graph. Uh, you should be able to point at a simple JS file and it should start. No, I, so I can uh, do that. But then in order yeah. for it to create a unique file name, right? So it, it, it like hashes the content and then it puts a, the hash in the file name. But then I'd have to go and take that file name and manually copy and paste into something else or have it write to a file that I would then have to build tooling around. To, and, and, and I'm not complaining. It was more like I was so excited to use this shiny new thing and then I realized that it's not always so simple to take the shiny new thing and wedge it into the old yeah. crufty pile of mud that I've been working on for a it's, decade and a half. Yeah, it's not just plug and play. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. And that's a necessary cost of dropping all these assumptions. Mm-hmm. That's why I tend to talk about things in terms of assumptions. Uh, the optimal solution, like what is best, tends to ch- change when the assumptions change. So I, I focus on the assumptions of ES modules going away, uh, sorry, uh, IE11 going away, JS, uh, the Unix philosophy going away, JS for JS developers going away. And when you drop those assumptions, new problems come mm-hmm. along and we're going to have to solve those. So yeah, I try not to be an unmitigated champion. Like I think a lot of people, <laughs> when they when they promote an idea, they only say the, the pros. I think that's very intellectually dishonest. So we should be pretty open about like, yeah, there are costs and sometimes these costs outweigh the benefits and you should just not do anything. And that's completely fine. Yeah, so I try to make, clear that every time yeah. i have a couple of other so things that didn't make the cut are you, uh, are you oh yes please i was gonna yeah, ask that yes, please go ahead <laughs> this is the exciting part so, ooh, so the integration of language and infrastructure so i don't know who here has messed around with pulumi like the devops stack essentially pulumi or aws cdk essentially so let's kind of walk backwards since a lot uh, some of you are shaking your heads yeah so so when you provision infrastructure on on public clouds you used to have to write all this you used to have to click around right like, like on DigitalOcean, you'd like be like give me this five dollar box or whatever and then on aws or ec2 you just like give me like this size of box and that's where i run it but when you start managing fleets of machines that just gets unscalable click ops gets unscalable mm-hmm. so we start developing infrastructure as code which for them, for AWS means cloud formation, which is right. a declarative template of just like, here's everything. I'm just going to give it to you, spin things up as needed, spin things down as not needed. And that's fantastic until that becomes thousands and thousands of lines long. And so where the state of things have, the, the state of play has come to is we're now using programming languages to generate cloud formation mm. to deploy onto these cloud, to these things. So that's where AWS CDK and Pulumi come along to, to really give you uh, some power in expressing these things and building reusable functions and doing all, doing a lot of expressive power in your infrastructure provisioning. The problem is then you now have to connect that up to your application that you wrote in whatever language, let's just say JavaScript. So it turns out that I can write my AWS provisioning infrastructure in TypeScript. I can write my server code in TypeScript. I can write my app in TypeScript. But all these things don't naturally talk together. And actually, I don't really want to do it, do any of that infrastructure provisioning stuff. I just want to use it, right? So how, what's the situation in which I can just uh, send you my app and you figure out what it needs? You figure out the databases, you figure out the, I don't know, the authentication, the, the queuing me- mechanisms and the, all that, all that stuff that, that, that might possibly be. So that's the sort of holy grail of just right business logic. So this is a blog post that I recently wrote called the self provisioning runtime, where essentially you write the app and you sort of declare the resources that you, they use within the app as you, as you sort of use the app. And there's no other configuration. There's no other deployment. And that saves like a third of your code <laughs> and, you, and you just ship it to, to the platform and it just runs uh, everything else. So people People are working on this serverless. There's a company called serverless.com, which is very confusing because it overlaps with the serverless movement, which is a not a company specific thing, but they just bought the domain name and they won SEO. <laughs> but uh, they're, moved, they're building serverless cloud, which is essentially it. Like uh, to, to, to store things to a database, you require it in an NPM module, right? Like, so that, that just like is a fundamentally simpler way. So it's an integration of language with infrastructure. And you, you're going to see more of those. I, I have like four or five different examples. A couple of startup founders are also working on similar things, but it's very new. And probably you're not going to see this roll out for another two or three years, but it's on the radar that people are working on. That's great. Yeah. There's, so any comments on that? I well, have one more. <laughs> I think earlier in the call, when you talked about the four minute mile as an analogy for, for 
people not understanding that something's possible and then someone demonstrates it and then like a whole bunch of people want to pile on. To me, what you're talking about there feels very much in that same genre where if you said like, oh, provision databases by requiring an NPM module, I'd be like, that's crazy talk. (laughs) But then someone will do it and suddenly it's a proven idea and a whole new world opens up. So uh, from my very limited point of view, it sounds completely nuts. But I know that there's like brilliant people who are thinking about that in a much more in-depth way. And it's, I'm excited, but cautious, but excited. That's even a possibility. Yeah. (laughs) You can try it now, by the way, uh, with Begin. So Begin.com is a sort of serverless platform that deploys on on AWS. And yeah, you stand up a DynamoDB database by saying required Begin slash data. It's so simple. Um, Yeah. (laughs) It cannot get any simpler, right? As a quick aside, I, I listened to an interview with the guy who founded Begin, and he was talking about how yeah, right. they create a free tier for all of their databases, and they do it by, it, it was like this massive DynamoDB table where they actually apply user permissions on like individual rows within the DynamoDB yep. table. So like their entire free tier, I think, is a single table that they break up into individual users. I didn't really understand what he was saying, but it sounded very cool. Uh, so DynamoDB has a primary key and, and sort of uh, secondary index system that makes that pretty straightforward ah. to implement. Um, I think a lot of uh, serverless apps that are multi-tenant uh, do this exact, ah. exact architecture. And in, in DynamoDB, it makes it super cheap. So he's able to offer it free, free for everybody. Well, he's one of the smartest founders I've ever met. Brian, so yeah. I, I do have to disclaim that I, I invested in the company just because like, I, I don't know, like, I don't know where this goes, but he's a smart guy. So I'm sure he'll figure it out. <laughs> cool. But um, I was just going to say, we've been going for a little over an hour now and we want to be, you know, respectful of your time and uh, let's save something fun to talk about for the after show. So do you, is there anything that you want to say before we end the show? Is there anything do you want to <laughs> tell us about temporal or this is your minute, man? Yeah. Okay. All right, let's try to like make some noise for my employer. No, I mean, I, I left Amazon because I do believe in this thing. I spent the the past few years being an advocate for the serverless movement. And that's the serverless movement is a very strong friend of, of JavaScript and so, very strong friend of front-end developers, right? Because it's so much easier to deploy your own business logic on the server. The problem comes when you're trying to do anything substantial. And by substantial, I mean long-running. Because all serverless functions have a natural limit of three seconds and they can be extended up to 15 minutes if you want to, but you probably don't want to do that. You will probably want to dispatch things to a, to a task queue and then have that pull off in, into workers and stuff like that. And that is an essentially completely unanswered question in the serverless and Jamstack and front end space, right? How do you do long running tasks? And long running tasks are more frequent than you think. So anything from like processing a, a video file to waiting for a few preconditions to be fulfilled before you proceed to the next task. So this is, for example, what Uber does with driver onboarding, right? When you onboard as, a, as an Uber driver, you, ha- you have to fulfill like 10 or 15 different requirements. And all those things have to be true before you're approved as a Uber driver. How do you model that, right? You have to kind of pull together a scheduler, a database, uh, a little state machine, a queuing system. It's got to scale. You got to be able to test it. You got to be able to migrate uh, schemas. It's all a very messy business. Uh, and that's the state of the industry as it is today. Temporal is a way to simplify all that by writing code workflows. Uh, and these are a fundamentally new unit in the same way that search is a new, is a new sort of custom uh, job that you would never write on your own. You would just outsource it to a search engine. An analytics uh, tool you, is a custom database that you will outsource to an analytics tool. So a new category of software is called workflows, which specifically handle long-running tasks and help you test and migrate and deploy. <laughs> so yeah, that's cool. the bit. I was uh, speaking of temporal.io. Uh, I was reading Chris Richardson's book. He runs microservices.io. And he talks about choreography versus... Oh my God. Orchestration. Orchestration, Thank you. And I think he was so, uh, my understanding is that choreography is like this thing executes and then it knows to call the next thing. And then that thing knows to call the next thing. Like each kind of, each thing knows what to do next, but there's no overall sense of what to do. And orchestration is like, no, there's going to be one thing that kind of manages all the other individual parts. And I was, he, he said that, that choreography is the way to go because it simplifies the individual units and is more scalable and et cetera, et cetera. And then I was listening to a podcast the other day and someone was saying that, yeah, choreography is great when you have like three things to do. Maybe 
He's like, but the second things get really complicated and you're talking about how Uber, you have like 18 preconditions that you have to deal with. He was like, you need something that knows, like you need something that has state that you can debug and you can look at it and it knows when to call things. It knows how to queue stuff. He's like, to, if you rely on choreography, it's like, you'll go mad trying to understand how a system works and why it's not working at a particular moment. Anyway, sorry, that just popped in my head just because... No, so you pitched orchestration perfectly. It's not a clear superset. You're making out to be like orchestration is always better than choreography. It's not. And there's a a really good post by who is the Burning Monk on Twitter (laughs) where he goes into when you should use choreography versus orchestration. And basically the TLDR, and I'll save you the read, is that within a bounded context you want to do choreography because they all sort of are tightly bound coupled mm-hmm. pieces. But between bounded contexts, between systems, between jobs, you want orchestration. So uh, it's not an either or. You can sometimes use a mix, especially if you're doing a bunch of service things or microservice things. I think that makes sense. And, and I hate to... I, I feel like at the end of the day... Oh God, this is going to sound terrible. <laughs> like at the end of the day, you sort of have to build systems assuming that a lot of developers are not that intelligent and that sounds terrible and I don't mean it how it sounds, but like you can't, not everyone who works in a, in an engineering team are going to be staff level, super architecture. Yeah. Yeah. Like you need to be able to build systems that can be used and worked on by a whole range of people. And, And sometimes you like, you need to make, the less elegant choice sometimes because it's the easier choice to understand and maintain. You built it in for stupid. Right. (laughs) I I think so. I mean, so I think I'm not sure who said this, but you know, if you code, uh, whenever you code at at one level, when, if you have to debug that code, you have, it it kind of requires like two times that mental capacity. Mm -hmm. So if you code at the limits of your mental capacity, then when it comes time to debug, you're completely screwed. (laughs) So I love that one. I really yeah. like that phrasing. I don't know who said it, and I should probably go hunt it, hunt it down because I like to give credit. It sounds like Uncle Bob. He said everything. <laughs> One of those. <laughs> yeah, he said everything. Uh, he probably stole yeah. it from someone else too. <laughs> so yeah, but I, just to kind of loop it back, I have a blog post on why temporal. Uh, and there are three fundamental opinions. Orchestration is the first one. Second is event sourcing. And third is workflows as code. So I kind of lead you through the pain points. And if you share the agreement with the conclusions, then you're eventually going to build temporal whether or not you use it. Okay. So temporal is a language surface, a framework. It's a framework. It's a framework. It's a, thanks for coming on, man. You're awesome. Yeah, it was yeah. very, yeah, this was very great. engaging. Yeah. My, my brain is full. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying my best to give you good audio. You know, I, I know, I know what podcasters are. And you're doing all this at midnight for you. So yeah. you're on your game here, man. And he has a cold. Yeah. And a cold. I love technology. I mean, yeah, I hope yeah, it shines sure. through. And I love, I love talking about it with people who are equally interested and you're, you're giving me all the, the positive feedback that I need to keep going. So. <laughs> you're doing amazing. Keep up the hard work. So thank you so much for coming on the show. And I guess then this is the part where I say that this episode of Working Code was brought to you by all the JavaScript frameworks that you can't even pronounce. <laughs> and listeners like you, if you like what we're doing here, you might want to consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash workingcodepod. To thank our patrons for their support, they all get an invite to our Discord server where we hang out and chat about the podcast and work and life and all kinds of fun stuff. And how much and- Adam Cameron hates me. <laughs> or this week doesn't. <laughs> He's redirecting that at me, apparently. And we have other perks available, like early access to our new episodes and our after show that we're going to go record with Sean here momentarily. And of course, we need to thank our top patrons, Monty and Peter. Thank you guys so much for your support. If paying for podcasts isn't your thing, no worries. We appreciate you taking the time to listen. And there are some free ways that you can help us out, too. You can share the show with your friends and your coworkers, or you can leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. So please send us your questions and show topics on Twitter or Instagram at Working Code Pod, or leave us a message at 512-253-2633. That's 512-253-CODE. We'll catch you next week. And until then, remember guys, your heart, it matters <laughs> unless you're creating new JavaScript platforms. <laughs> You've been listening to Working Code with your hosts, Adam, Ben, Carol, and Tim. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and review on your preferred podcast listening platform. We really appreciate that effort. We'll catch you on the next episode of Working Code.